0: I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Saturday, March 20th, 2021, and this is episode 112 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. This week's best thing is that I finished my draft. (laughs) I finished the second draft of the 1920s fantasy heist novel that I have been working on. So the anatomy of this story, I got the idea sometime last summer and I, I worked on plotting, I guess in October of 2020, I did the first draft for NaNoWriMo, November of 2020, and then I started revisions. So between December, January, February, March, four months for revisions. Um, so this whole thing has been so far six months to a second draft. Now it's not final. Um, I realized as I finished that I discovered some things at the end that I'm going to have to layer back through, um, the rest of the book, but I'm going to give myself a few weeks before I do that to give myself a little bit of space. So I'll do another faster pass that I, I hope will only take a couple of weeks because I think it is mostly in good shape and the things that I have to layer in aren't huge. Maybe one whole new scene and then just some mentions of things some foreshadowing and um, planting things that pay off later on in the book at the end. I'm really happy with it. I'm really excited. I really like the story. Uh, and I know that I'm going to go through a bigger revision with my editor, um, and in that vein, I also have some positive news about when and where and how you might be able to read the story at some point in the future. I can't really share it yet, but it is looking positive. I don't like to jinx things before they're like done and real and ink is signed on contracts and things, but good news there. So stay tuned for that. Um, so yes, I feel good about about where it's going. I feel wonderful that I finished it. And my agent keeps telling me that I am a fast writer. I don't feel like, you know, considering so many people write, you know, a book a month these days for self-publishing. Um, and I'm not sure if those are 80,000-word books or not, but I guess if you're full-time, I guess you can write an 80,000-word book in a month. I don't know. Some people can. Six months is fast for me. And by the time it's all said and done, um, you know, before edits, it'll be six and a half, seven months if I count in whatever the next pass I'm going to do by myself uh, so yeah, it's, I don't know. I just, I, I felt so light and happy. I finished it on Wednesday of this week. I took Thursday off from writing and I came back Friday to, um, do some work on the next thing because we're rolling right into the next project. But I'm, I am trying to take a little bit of space to celebrate and, um, just feel really happy about this stage of it, you know, Joanna Penn, the host of the Creative Penn podcast, which I highly recommend, she talks a lot about finishing energy. And uh, finishing energy, it's probably different for different people. I mean, for me, at the end, you know, I had planned to take a few days to do like the last chapter. I I split it up, then I combined it again, and I was going to do the epilogue the next day. And then on Wednesday, I'm just like, I'm pushing through. I'm powering through. I'm writing the whole thing. I'm going to finish it today because I had that finishing energy. And... Things just start falling into place as I was writing the climax and then the denouement, you know, the end and then the epilogue. I just realized some things, you know, through that whole process, everything started coming together even more. And I think over the past couple of weeks, as I've gotten towards the end, I've been realizing you know, I talked about this last week. That's why I put some things there and there's threads there. It's a part of going back is just is flushing those out and strengthening the threads that are already there that I, somewhere in the back of my subconscious, I knew something. and I didn't figure it out until I finished writing the book. But yeah, that finishing energy is powerful. And it's sort of like riding a wave, you know, I've, I've never surfed, but I imagine it as sort of like, Right. And you're on the, the top of the wave and you're, you're just kind of letting it take you in to shore, if that how surfing works. <laughs> I'm extremely happy about this and uh, and I'm hoping to be able to share even more good news with you soon. So as I said, moving right into the next thing, which is the other project that I've mentioned a little bit. Um, so that is a project that was sort of brought to me and uh, it's a collaboration So I'm working on plotting it, and then I'm going to be writing a book proposal and then shopping the book proposal. And then if that gets bought by a publisher, completing the book at some point in the future. But right now I have to focus on the proposal, which I'm targeting 100 pages. And so, but of course I need to know the plot of the entire book in order to write the first 100 pages. And it has involved research. It's in the 1830s. It's another historical. And so... I've got the outline and I was working on this yesterday and I'm at the point where, you know, I have, I have a structure I'm following, you know, basic. I didn't actually use save the cat this time. This time, this story felt more like a Dan Wells seven point plot structure kind of structure. (laughs) Like, I don't know how I determine which way to start. Often I start with the save the cat or save the cat writes a novel as I did with the last book. Um, but sometimes that just doesn't feel right. Sometimes I'll, the other one that I often start with is this Dan Wells. Author Dan Wells has this seven point, uh, plot structure, and there's a series of YouTube videos where he talks about it. That's where I first learned about it. The structure is available in the plotter software that I use. And I actually have this, um, worksheet of all these different plotting systems. And so uh, yesterday, that's what I use. And it, it kind of breaks it down in a slightly different way. Like I have my own spreadsheet, my multi-tab spreadsheet that is my story structure planner. And it's basically, a it list of seven points and I just put them in order. But this other worksheet that I downloaded from somewhere breaks it down in, in a slightly different way, which I found helpful. So I'll link to this. It's called the plot formula cheat sheet. And it has some plot, um, plot formulas that I've never heard of, like Lester Dent's plot formula. I've heard of Randy Ingram Mason's Snowflake Method. It's got the Blake Snyder beat sheet, which is for the Cat, Fool's Journey, Christopher Vogler's Writer's Journey, John Truby's 22 points, some other ones. Um, but it also has the Dan Wells seven point structure. And uh, essentially, the overview, number one is the hook, hero in opposite state to their end state. Number two is the plot turn one or turning point one, which is what I usually call it which introduce the conflict, the hero's world changes, call to adventure, new ideas, new people, new secrets. The third point is the first pinch point, where you apply pressure, something goes wrong, bad guys attack, pieces destroyed. It forces the hero into action, and you introduce the villain. Point four is the midpoint, movement from one state to the other, a shift from reaction to action. Point five is the second pinch point, where you apply more pressure until the situation appears hopeless. The plan fails, a mentor dies, the bad guys seem to win, the jaws of defeat, which is also all is lost. Point six is the second plot point or plot turn two, depending on what you want to call it. You move the story from the midpoint to the end. The hero obtains the final piece to move from the midpoint to the resolution. The power is in you. I think on my spreadsheet, I say use the Force Luke and um, the hero snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And then the seventh point is the resolution. The hero follows through on their decision from the midpoint, and the hero becomes the opposite of their hook state at the very beginning. And in the spreadsheet that I have, um, is a recommended order of plotting them. So you start with the hook, then you skip down to the end so that you know the end. Then you do the midpoint, and then you kind of up, do the opposing. So you, you do one, seven, four, two, six, three, five, I believe. That sounds very confusing. I don't expect anybody to understand that. It's easier if you see it, <laughs> if you're looking at it. <laughs> anyway, I, will, I, I do recommend, um, if you don't want to look, look through the videos, I'll see if there's an article or something that, that gives a better overview of his method, because I have found it extremely helpful in my plotting. It matches up to a certain degree with Save the Cat. I mean, they all sort of, they map on top of each other. I do have another spreadsheet that, um, if I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes. I didn't make it. So if I can find the actual original person who made it and link to the original, but it, it lines them up. So you can see on a, like a spreadsheet across like these different plotting systems and how the different points match up with other points and other plotting systems. If you're a plot junkie like me. So yes, I, I I filled it out. And then what I had done is similar to what I did with the end of the heist book. I had been churning these ideas in my mind. I had been working with some material um, that I had been given about the story, and I knew I had to make some changes. So I you know, was trying to hold the story in my head, sort of vomit out the story in just a list. I just made a long list of everything that should happen, and then put it into a structure, a plotting system. So I have something that sort of works. I do feel like it's missing something. I feel like it's missing the blood on the page. It's missing the heart. And I was doing just some Googling. I'm, I'm trying to remember what I was Googling. I was Googling character arcs. Um, I think I was thinking about Silence of the Lambs because this story is sort of a thriller. It's not quite a thriller, but I, thinking about it as a thriller helps me to organize my mind around it because it's, it's, it's different than what I've done before and it's got elements of a thriller. So I was looking at the character arcs in silence of the lambs, which is, you know, classic thriller used in a lot of different craft books and, um, articles because I, and I haven't read the book. I'm only familiar with the movie, but I know the movie is fairly faithful, but it's just an excellent example of craft. Um, so I, I found this article from a website called Narrative First, which is like a Dramatica website. And I've talked about Dramatica. Dramatica is another story creation system that is extremely complicated. And I tried to learn it. And I didn't try very hard because there's a lot to it. There's software, there's classes, there's books, there's all kinds of things. And it's it's a lot. And I've always felt extremely overwhelmed by trying to to learn it. As much of a plot junkie as I am, I do not feel like dramatic is a thing that I can learn. And I'm sure I could learn it, but it's so much. So much. Anyway, a lot of websites that follow the dramatic system or that are based on that are still extremely helpful, even if they're using the specific terminology of that system um, that I <laughs> don't want to learn. <laughs> so... Um, this one was about essentially flat character arcs. That's how K.M. Weiland puts them. In their terminology and dramatic, it's steadfast characters, I believe. And so you always hear that characters have to change their, their, you know, stories are about character change. And I do believe that. But every change doesn't have to be like a dynamic change. Sometimes the quote unquote change is that the character is, um, the way that they do things is attacked and they remain steadfast. They actually have a flat character arc. They continue doing what they're doing in response to a world or a situation that is asking them to do things differently because they're already on the right track. And that's kind of what a flat character arc is. Examples of flat characters can be someone like uh, James Bond, who doesn't really change, you know, um, Jack Reacher. And also Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. Now, there's some debate about this, depending on what you consider change. Like, There are people who have found a change arc in her story, and other people will say it's a flat arc. So all of these things are kind of open to interpretation. But in this particular article, it was uh, promoting the idea that it's like more of a flat arc or a steadfast character. That she doesn't really have an internal growth arc because she's already committed to justice. She's already committed to her course of action and she stays on that path. So and that's often you know in my in my research on thrillers that's often the way that thrillers work. You have this or even mysteries, you know, uh an Hercule Poirot or uh, Miss Marple who are these other <laughs> mystery characters who are solving mysteries. You know, I used to watch Murder She Wrote all the time. You know, the 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 mystery solver, the detective is not really changing. They're encountering a world in which um the question is, will justice prevail? And they are remaining steadfast in their, you know, paradigm that justice will prevail, and then they they prove it at the end by by catching the killer or solving the crime. And so, since this story that I'm writing is a little bit of a mystery, but not quite, <laughs> it's like it's not quite a thrill, it's not quite a mystery. But it is about someone seeking justice. And so I'm using those as kind of um, templates of how stories work. And so I did research on thrillers and how thrillers are structured. And I got a lot of good information that has helped inform my approach to this outline and this plot. But, you know, I haven't – flat character arcs are not uh, a thing that I have a lot of experience with. At one point I was trying, I think in Requiem – there's so many characters, and I was trying to do a flat character arc for somebody, and I, and I might have, but this is, you know, the main, one of the main characters would, ha- would have a flat character arc, and I'm exploring that. Like, I think there is room for a little bit of change, uh, but one of the things that I learned about thrillers is that, you know, the main character, while they might not change internally in the way that romance characters, for example, generally do... They are often um, hit with interpersonal conflicts that they have to resolve. So it is more about the external conflict than the internal conflict. Some cool quotes from those articles. Um, a complete story argues a particular point of view in regards to the appropriate or inappropriate way to solve a problem. And every complete story depicts the battle between two different points of view, two different perspectives on the best approach to solving the problems within a story. So often that is, I think like in Silence of the Lambs, I have to watch it again. And I kind of don't want to, like it's a good movie, but it's a lot. And I don't know if I need all that in my brain. But if you're looking at, I believe in Dramatica, you've got, and I think that they uh, have a distinction between the main character and the protagonist. And I don't know what that is. (laughs) But they also have the influence character. And other plotting systems will have an influence character as well, which can be the antagonist or it can be like a mentor for Hero's Journey or some other character who, you know, is arguing for a different way of solving the problem than the main character does. And that's also interesting to keep in mind. Um, Another article I found on that same website was called Forget the Cat, Save Yourself. And it is a critique of Save the Cat. Which, as much as I love say' the Cat* um, and plotting systems in general, the main the main point of this was that, and it's true, and I acknowledge is that those systems, every plotting system, is sort of reverse engineered from the final product, and they write these plot books and sell courses and things uh, after reverse engineering stories, Hemingway or Jane Austen or like great writers of the past. Before there were plotting books, they didn't. Have this available. It was sort of intuitive. So, the criticism or critique of the system, I think, is that it's formulaic and that when you're writing to a formula, it feels like you're writing to a formula. And and that is absolutely true. Like, a lot of times I'll watch a movie and I'm like, you, you feel the formula. You're like, oh, they wrote exactly to this. And while the structure is there, because I do believe that's how we understand story. You still have to have room within it. You know, you You want to hit the guideposts, um, but as I am an example of, you can't hit them too closely and you can't write, you know, you can't let them restrict you. You know, there's a point at which there are diminishing returns. And that is also important to to recognize. Like, if you're a beginner writer and you don't know how to plot, absolutely. And imbibe all of the craft information and the structure and... Like, learn it because you need it, because uh, if you want to do a mainstream, like, commercial popular fiction. And after a certain point, I do think it becomes innate, and you start there with the skeleton, and then you can kind of move beyond it. I think the main point of the criticism was that it's a bit reductive, which is fine. And I agree with to a point. Like, I think that new writers absolutely need to learn structure they should, if they don't want to learn 15 plotting systems, learn one or two and apply them until you understand them, until it's sort of second nature. And, you know, like the old thing, the old saying, you have to know the rules before you can break them, but you shouldn't let structure stymie you or stifle you. Trying to fit your story into the structure is something that I have experienced very recently that can backfire. So it's like, You need it, but you also need to learn, like, after you've mastered it, learn to go beyond it. And that's almost where I feel like right now. Like, I feel like I have a structure that is, that works, that is a complete story. You know, beginning, middle, and end. There are movements, there's ups and downs, there's excitement. Something is missing. And that something can't be found in structure. So it's not a structural problem. And learning to diagnose the problems in your story is a whole nother skill that I don't, you know, it's just experience, I think. It's hard to, I mean, it's experience and other people. So other people's experience too. Like I probably will go to my critique partners and kind of hash it out with them and be like, okay, what... Can I add? What is missing? What am I? Why am I feeling like this? Because I feel like I have a fine story and I want to take it to the next level. And that's sort of where the art comes from. As a writer, you gather a lot of tools in your arsenal and that's part of experience. Gathering the tools and then knowing which tool to pull out, you know, for which job. Do you need a wrench? Do you need, name other tools, (laughs) a hammer, (laughs) like name a fancy tool. I can't think of any fancy tools. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at with the new project. And I really want to start a fast draft uh, this week. And I'm trying to decide if I'm going to fast draft the entire story or just the beginning part that I need to do for the proposal. Fast drafting the entire story would put me on more firm footing in terms of feeling confident that this first hundred pages is closer to being the best I can do at this point. I'm also thinking about changing the way that I fast draft, like doing even faster fast drafts, more skeletal, more like just um, like a script, a play script or a movie script where it's just dialogue and a little bit of action. Because my fast drafts, I really do a very fast version of a complete story. It's bare bones, but it could be even more bare bones is what I'm trying to say. And because I rewrite it completely anyway, there's no need for it to be fleshed out in any way. I just am not sure if the current process, like the little bit of fleshing out that I do, is that what seals it in my head? Or if I do less, will will the rewrite be harder? I'm not sure. But I guess it's worth experimenting to find out and see. One good thing about finishing the manuscript is that I can now read... In the genre, I don't generally like to read in the exact genre that I'm writing in while I'm writing and like actively creating ideas. So I've been reading other, other genres. I've been reading more romance, romantic suspense. I've gotten into a whole romantic suspense kick, but not so much fantasy or fantasy romance. And now I'm freed up to, to read some of that, which is nice because I think that feeds my soul also. In other news, I wanted to shout out Talia Hibbert, who just made the New York Times bestseller list with her latest book, Actor Age, Eve Brown. It's the third book in the series, Contemporary Romance. Um, it is not, to my knowledge, super common for especially a Black author of Contemporary Romance to hit the New York Times bestseller list, so mad props to her. I do actually really enjoy her books. I haven't uh, read this one yet. I'm one book behind in the series, but... It's like, I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So, congratulations to her. And, um, you know, rising tide lifts all ships. Also, if you are a Black, Indigenous, person of color, BIPOC, contemporary romance author, I, I just have a, a weird thing with the term BIPOC, but... um and there is a grant for audiobooks. So if you haven't produced an audiobook yet and you are interested, Audio in Color is a grant giving $5,000 to BIPOC contemporary romance authors for um, to fund the creation of an audiobook. And that's about how much they cost. It's from Nana Malone and Lyric Audiobooks. And I will have a link to that. And also they have a grant fund so that if you want to donate to increase the pot so that there are more people um, can win this grant, then there's a GoFundMe link also. All this in the show notes. These are really cool things happening and uh, it's it's great to see. Oh, and finally, the uh, podcast giveaway is still on. So if you would like to win a copy of, so to speak, 11,000 expressions that'll knock your socks off, go to elpenlp.com slash podcast giveaway and fill out the form, and enter. Contest is open until the end of March 2021, and good luck. So that is all for me for this week. I will talk to you next week, and my goals are to get this plot done and start the fast draft of the new thing, and bask in finishing the other manuscript. But, on to the next For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media podcast.